Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. Hey, thanks for joining us on another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast. My name is Mark Striegel, and today's guest is Greg Renoff, who is going to talk Van Halen with us. And before we get into the episode, I'd just like to remind you to support the podcast by using our Amazon links. You know, when you're doing your Christmas shopping on Amazon, you just take one extra step. Go to TalkingMetal.com and use our links to get over to Amazon, and then you go about your purchases as you normally would and it's still exactly the same price everything's exactly the same we just end up getting a very small kickback on that Uh, but it is helpful so i appreciate the support you guys have given us by using those links and please continue to do so Uh, so let's get into the show again we have greg on the line with me greg how are you hey mark it's good to be back with you again thanks for having me Thank you for coming back for what I'm calling the third and final installment, at least for now. Of course, you'll be welcome back sometime in the future. But as far as covering your book, which came out about a month ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And 
a lot, a lot of interesting stuff that really comes into play in the the final parts of of the book. I want to pick your brain about Gene Simmons and how he was actually turned on to the band. It it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the the girls in in the band, the Runaways, may have had a a part in helping him hear Van Halen for the first time. Is that a correct statement? Yeah. And so, um, from what I understand, Gene was living in Los Angeles in the summer fall of 1976, and at some point that during that time period, he had made it a, made it a practice to go out to clubs more often, start to check out some bands that were around. And then uh, he sort of mentioned this, it sounds like offhandedly, to Jackie Fox and Lita Ford that he was thinking about trying to find a band to produce. And uh, Lita and Jackie both had um, some bands in mind. Lita and Jackie talked about two bands, one called The Boys, which had George Lynch and Mick Brown, later of Dokken in it, and then Van Halen. And so um, the... the I think the way the gene looked at this was that the Beatles had Apple, Zeppelin had Swansong. We want to have a label like that for Kiss, and we want to have bands just like Zeppelin did and just like the Beatles did that they would have on their own labels. Since that was the that was sort of the vision, and you can see why. I mean, th- at that point, of course, as we all know, anyone who listens to this knows that Kiss was arguably, certainly the biggest quote-unquote hard rock heavy metal band in the world at that time and arguably maybe the biggest band in the world at that time so we're talking for kiss fans of course this is you know alive the big album that their fourth record which was kiss alive which really kind of broke them to the mainstream was out for already a year or two at this point right Mm -hmm. and we're talking about it was rock and roll over i guess was was 76 that was probably out by this point it was almost just about out yeah and so destroyer was i guess was in the cycle too, right? Destroyer was the one that was. Oh right, yeah, of course, yeah. After Alive, yeah. so it was like in between. I think this is in between. Correct me if I'm wrong. In between Destroyer and um, Rock and Roll Over, I think that's right. I hope that's right. Um, so Gene is in in Los Angeles, and what is is uh, again on his mind is he wants to produce a band, and so from what I gathered from talking to Jackie, I interviewed Jackie, I didn't speak to Lita is that whenever Jackie and Lita had some time, they would go over to a hotel called the Sunset Marquee, which is still there in Hollywood. And at the time, it was more of a funky, sort of a offbeat hotel. It wasn't like this super luxury hotel. But they would go, and they would they would uh, visit with uh, Gene and Paul. I think Gene was living there. Maybe Paul was too. Right. And they would they would basically drink drinks at the, around the pool and talk to them. And, you know, Gene would say, you know, what girls, what bands are hot? And uh, they would always say Van Halen and the Runaways. And Excuse Jackie me, and Lita at this point, I mean, we're talking 17-year-old girls, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I said the runaways. They were saying the, the boys in Van Halen. So it <laughs> turns out that around October, Gene starts to put this plan into action. As far as I understand from talking to, to Jackie Fox, Paul was much more of a follower in this. I mean, she didn't say that explicitly, but it was definitely was Gene was the one who was, was motivated to do this, whereas Paul may have been involved in these conversations. He didn't seem particularly motivated to do this. So this um, Gene shows up at the uh, a club called Gazzari's. In, Which we uh, spoke with, about on the last episode. Yeah, with some people from Casablanca in tow. Um, and, and actually, Paul was there as well. So they show up, and they're, they're checking out some bands. And they talk to a couple of the bands, and they see this band called The Boys. And it just turned out that night, um, and again, this is basically the week before Halloween, is my understanding. It's the Wednesday before Halloween, or right before Halloween happens. Um, 
this, the band, the boys performs, they actually do a kiss song that night. Not because they knew those guys were there because nobody knew what Gene and Paul looked like without makeup. It was just the fact that so many kids were there that night wearing kiss makeup because it was a Halloween party at Gazzari's mm-hmm. that those guys decided to do a kiss song. So they do this kiss song, Gene and Paul come up to them, talk to them. Of course, at first they're like, we don't believe it's you. They show them a business card from Casablanca and those guys, their jaws drop and they say, Oh wow, this is really, this is it. This is Gene and Paul are here. So Gene says to them, when are you playing next? And they say, well, next week we're playing at the Starwood early in the week. I think it was a Monday or Tuesday. And so Gene says, okay, get ready. I'm coming back. Well, it turns out that Van Halen was also on the bill at the Starwood. And so whether that was a happy coincidence or not, whether Gene was planning on going anyway to the Starwood, I was never quite able to figure out. But the way it worked out, Gene was going to go back and see the boys. And then he was also going to see Van Halen for the first time. And so when they go to the Starwood that night, um, the Monday or Tuesday of that following week, uh, what just basically ends up happening is that the boys don't perform very well. And Van Halen really has a good night that gets better as the night goes on. Basically, when Gene walks in, the crowd seems a little bit subdued when Van Halen comes on. But he says that Dave is um, – Gene in many interviews talked about how Dave really got the crowd going. Eddie was amazing on guitar, and the crowd really got energized. And he said, wow, these guys really have it. Even on a night when the crowd's not really that into it at first, they're really able to get the crowd behind them. And so uh, in contrast, what happened with the boys, according to um, Michael White, the lead singer I interviewed – the, the boys I interviewed, he was later in a, a tribute band called The White that did Zeppelin songs in the in the late 80s, early 90s, arguably the first Zeppelin tribute. Uh, he just said we we over-rehearsed, and basically they these guys know that this is their big chance. They just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and, and Michael White says, my voice was kind of shot. We just were we just had burned ourselves out. We didn't do well. And so um, end of the night, Gene goes back and talks to Van Halen and then uh, basically lays this idea on them that he wants to produce them. So was there any hesitation when Gene lays this on them, or did they just jump all over it? Uh, what what was the vibe from the band as far as Gene Simmons approaching them with this offer? Yeah, um, at first, I think those guys were, like anybody else, they were shocked when they realized this really is Gene Simmons um, who's there to to talk to them. Right. And they, I think at first there's this, this again, this sort of like, well, let's wait and see. And minute for the future for me is what Gene has to say. And basically Gene says, look, I don't want to own your music. I don't want to control you guys. I just want to give you a chance. I think you're a good band. And Gene, um, talks to those guys quite a bit about agents and money and Michael Anthony in an interview later says that, you know, actually I got, <laughs> I was having a second thoughts about whether I wanted to be a musician after I heard Gene talk for about 10 minutes. Cause he was telling all these stories about, you know, in some detail about bands that had gotten ripped off. And I think those guys obviously knew those stories, but I think Gene was laying it out in really granular detail saying, look, if you guys end up with the wrong, uh, individuals, you will lose everything. And right. Gene's saying, look, I'm a rich man. I don't want to be richer. Um, I just want to help you guys. And so, which, end, judging what happens later with their career after selling millions of records and not having any money, maybe they should have listened a little more closely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's that there's that aspect of it. And then we should come back to what Gene ends up doing with those guys later um, in terms of the money. But And so Gene, at the end of the night, gets those guys to agree to come to a studio called Village Recorder Studio in Los Angeles. I think it's in Santa Monica. Um, the next day, supposedly according to Eddie, literally the next day, to record this, to record a demo. And so they do. They show up the next day. They bring their uh, haul or whatever. They haul their gear over there, or they or they 
um, bring their guitars at least, and they start recording and they knock out this this demo, this ten song demo, um, and lay these tracks down. Right. What follows next is that. Now Gene thinks he's got a good band, and let's face it. He and did, did they finish the demo? Because eventually they end up flying to New York, right, to right. do more recording. Right. So my my way I was able to put it together in the book was that they – what was happening was that when Gene calls – they work for a day or two, and Gene calls back to New York and tells Bill Coin, I found a band. And Bill Coin actually says something in effect. He goes, what's the name of the band? And he goes, they go, oh, Van Halen. And uh, Gene wants to tell Bill Coin all about Van Halen and – Bill Coin cuts him off and goes, I know about this band. I heard about them when I was in Los Angeles last time. And so this kind of getting back to the fact that Van Halen had been around for a while. They had sort of had a reputation as maybe a band that was uh, not very, whatever, not ready for prime time, whatever it was. Whatever Coin had heard or seen, he had not been impressed. I don't think he actually saw them. Do you think he really heard about them or do you think he was just telling Gene that like, oh yeah, sure, I know about it. Because Coin, I actually, we had Coin on Talking Metal. He's got this kind of like... Well, he's dead now, but he had this kind of like I know more than you vibe, and it it, it was part of his demeanor. Like no matter what you said, he he always wanted to be the dominant one in the conversation or in the the room. Yeah, you know, I think you're bringing up a good point. I took him at face value. I I I quoted your interview in the book, um, and I took him at face value. I mean, I think it's a fair point to say was he was he BSing? I mean, that's at least what he what he he. he says he said to Gene, and uh, I mean, I have every reason to believe that. No, that was our interview. You, got, you got yeah, that I believe one? so. Yeah, I believe cool. so. Yeah, I quoted your. That's yeah, awesome. I quoted, yeah, um, I I have every reason to believe that that a coin was not enthusiastic about Gene's quote unquote interest in producing a band, and I think it's possible that. Um, since other record people, uh, record label people had seen Van Halen around Los Angeles and had passed on them, I talk about that in the book, that it's possible that maybe, uh, a coin had gotten the word or sort of had that, had been told about this band and just was told, oh, there's nothing there. There's nothing to see. Um, so the, whether the demo was finished or not, it certainly was not complete in Gene's eyes because whatever, um, he wanted to do to it, which was overdubbing, quite a bit of overdubbing or more overdubbing than had been done already. Um, he, he wants to finish and that's why he takes the band to New York. So I, and I interviewed Michael Anthony. He actually said to me that, um, you know, Gene said to me and to Alex that, well, you guys really don't have to come right. because your tracks, you, you don't, we've done the bass and the, the drums, that those tracks are finished. And I assume most of the guitar was done and most of the vocals were done. But he said, I want you there as a band, presumably because he wants to try to sell a coin or right, sell right. the people on Van Halen. So they all go to New York. And that's when the, the uh, you talked about um, the overdubbing. And that's when really the overdubbing begins. And they go into Electric Lady. They tour the they tour the facility. Michael Anthony said that one of the biggest thrills he had at that point as a musician was they go into the tape library at Electric Lady. I mean, he's yeah. excited to be recording Electric Lady, but he said that he walked in there and they have all these reels of music lined up and all these Hendrix sessions, like, you know, like Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix. And he said he was just blown away by the, by the, uh, the presence of all that greatness around him. And, um, but Gene then like basically, you know, maybe has Alex, Maybe do one, you know, a couple fixes. I don't know. Uh, Mike did some singing, but they were done basically very quickly. They were out of there in a couple of hours. And then it was just right. Eddie and Dave and, and mostly Eddie and Gene actually just sitting there working on this, uh, on this demo. Wow. So 
let's yeah. So they they finished the demo, and I mean, a lot of us have heard the demo. I haven't heard it in a number of years, but on a hard drive somewhere, I have the MP3s. What what I remember of it is the overdubbing, which is odd for for someone who is very familiar with Van Halen's sound on those first six records especially there you know there there was there was overdubbing there were times where you'd hear two guitars but for the most part it it always felt like it was a a, a live sound and and it's a different production on that that Gene Simmons demo and at times i seem to remember correct me if i'm wrong kind of sloppy at times right I, you know I, I think for me the 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 the, the flaws in the demo are numerous. I, I always think it's amazing to compare the fact that basically, you know, I don't, I don't know, ex, you know, the exact days that Eddie and Gene were in the studio, but it was basically early November 1976. They're in Electric Lady, okay. And then fast forward to February 1977 or so, uh, maybe early March in that area. Then that's when the Van Halen demo is done with Templeman. And so if you listen to the Ted Templeman demo. On YouTube, and you compare it. It's just is that the ones they called the "That's All Folks" demo? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Of, there's 25 songs that were done by by Templeman. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but but um, there's really they're night and day uh, that compare the two. The, the to me, the, the big challenge is like you said, the sloppiness. I you know I don't know if I call it sloppy. I think Ross singing is not particularly good. I don't think that in a two day, three day period that Gene had any sort of ability to sort of discern what what Roth was skilled at and what he should encourage Roth to do. And so, I mean, one thing I think is pretty evident is that if you listen to a song like House of Pain, there's a couple parts where Roth drops his voice down into this like, you know, sub octave thing to clearly an imitation of God of Thunder or something like that. something that Gene was saying, Oh, you'll sound mean if you drop your voice down. And so that sounds forced to me. Um, I don't think the, the, um, the, you know, the, the vocal, personality that we see that comes through with the recordings that he does with Templeman, meaning right. Roth and the rest of the guys, the, the screams, the yelps, the sort of the, the little laughs, all the little things that Roth sort of made into his own. None of that stuff is really present on the, on the Simmons demo. Right. So you go into great detail about their, their time in, in New York, uh, in the book, it includes, uh, them going to the kiss rehearsal. And, and when a coin shows up, I guess the Van Halen guys, you know, get on the instrument. Alex is on Peter Chris's mm -hmm. drums. And as a Kiss fan and a Van Halen fan, it's kind of fascinating to think about Ace, you know, Eddie using Ace's amps and, and Alex playing Peter's drums and, and all that. Um, so, the, and they, they actually play in front of O'Coin at, at one of the Kiss rehearsal studios when he's there. Do you know what songs they played in front of O'Coin? I don't. I know they definitely, that uh, Eddie did play through, Ace's, Ace's guitar, right. yeah. I mean, they played through their instruments. I think, I think it was. Uh, I don't think, based on what Gene says, Gene said that uh, they, he invited those guys down to watch Kiss rehearse, and probably in the back of his head, he wanted to get those guys on stage in front of a coin so he could show them what he saw, show Kiss, and maybe show show a coin what he saw in Los Angeles. And so, when a coin shows up, you know, they're taking a break, and then Gene walks over to those guys and, and had not told them this and said. Hey, you know, uh, Bill, Bill's here. You should, you should, you should. We should audition. You should do a little showcase. Get up there and play. Right. And so those guys were not prepared for that. Now, um, so they're trying to imagine they're trying to set the drums yeah, up and the right just way. Just as a player, I can't imagine like plugging into somebody else's rig and trying to get your sound and 
you know, especially drums are such a, you know, the positioning of them and everything. It's, 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 it's sometimes hard to jump onto other people's instruments and, and sound great. Well, yeah, I don't no think matter Gene, how great you are. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Gene did them any favors. I mean, I, I understand that he was trying to give them an opportunity, I think, but in retrospect, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it was just, um, you can imagine you're nervous and then you're, you're up there and you're in front of, you know, you're like, this is my chance to audition in front of uh, one of the most powerful men in the record industry. And, yeah. I don't have my guitar. I don't have my pedals. I don't town of, of yeah. New York city, you know? So, so basically, you know, a coin here's, and you, again, we're encouraging everyone to buy the book. It's Van Halen rising. Greg's book, a great, great read. You can get it on Amazon. We'll have it linked through today's show notes on talkingmetal.com. Uh, but, but basically, uh, you, you go into great detail in this in the book. But again, basically, he, a coin sends him home without a deal, right? He, and, and he specifically targets Roth, I believe, as, as the reason why, and basically says it to Roth's face. Listen, I, I don't think the singing's strong enough, right? Which yeah. has to be. I, I just, uh, listen, I mean, I've put out music, I've put out CDs. I mean, that has to be upsetting i mean it has to be deeply upsetting to to roth uh, no matter how strong of an individual he may seem like that that's really gotta gotta hurt you know what i mean no no question i think the other thing too that's kind of worth worth just fleshing out here yeah i mean i'd love people to pick up the book and i talk about this in even more detail in the book is that when the rehearsal was over when the, the showcase was over those guys had every reason to believe that something good was going to happen. I mean, even if they didn't play well, because a coin, you know, based on the interviews that I use of a coin talking, a coin told those guys that they sounded okay or they sounded good or something like, Oh yeah, you guys sound great. And said, come to my office tomorrow. So Michael Anthony told me when they show up in the office, uh, the Madison Avenue office of uh, a coins operations, they're sitting there looking at a coin and, and he's not saying anything. And Alex eventually goes, where's the paperwork? Where did we sign? <laughs> Right, and a coin goes. Well, no, you're not signing anything. You know, I'm not signing you guys. And just sort of goes, and then you know, as you said, goes around and kind of like lays out all the the uh, faults of the group that he sees, and then and then targets Roth to basically go. Yeah, the singing's not very good. You know, maybe if you had a different different vocalist, I could work with you guys, but I can't work with you guys with Dave. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hate to say this. I hate to say this, and I probably shouldn't, because I know a coin has taken on this legendary status, especially since he's passed. But the guy was kind of a dick. I mean, I, I, I've met him. I met him twice, and and he definitely just even when you met, like to me, like I remember him telling your hair is not long enough. What are you doing? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. it's like he's just he had a a condescending um, vibe about him, at least to me personally, and and. I could see that just being part of his personality, uh, and um, I don't know. I just I, I really wonder. Like, did he did he hate the band that much? Was he ups- was he secretly upset that you know Gene was spending this time with this band yeah. and not devoting it to Kiss, which you kind of hint at at the book in the book, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's all those those factors. I mean, that's you know that's sort of that is for number one. I think the thing that's worth pointing out is that. Paul has seemingly taken on this interest in trying to claim that he was in on the whole Van Halen thing. And I, yeah. I have to tell you that I really think that's completely revisionist history. There's this. Well, uh, yeah, Paul is, is the master of revising history for sure. And so um, even in the book, Paul, you know, Paul, uh, his own bio, Paul, and it suggests that he was one of the guys who helped Scott. Basically, he and Alcoin killed the deal. And I, I have no idea whether that's 
true or not, um, you got to take Paul at his word. Well, Cohen's not around to tell us whether that's true or not. It's only Paul's the only guy who can tell us. And uh, that basically in secret, Paul met with a coin and told him, we can't, you, you can't let this happen because Gene will get more distracted from Kiss because they did have an album coming out and they were getting ready to tour. Right, so right. then they get, then those guys get sent home. Um, they get sent home and Gene famously says to a coin as he's exiting the office, something like, you're going to eat these words saying that these guys are no good or you're, you know, they don't, they're not going to ever get anywhere. And he's like, you're going to, you're going to regret this. And uh, he was right. Now, I, I, I met Gene for the first time in 1995. I may have told this story on, on Talking Metal before. What basically happened was uh, VH1, where I was like a PA or AP at the time, was interviewing him for a 70s documentary. And it was just, you know, boring questions like, you know, what was Studio 54 like and blah, blah, yeah. blah. And I was the PA on the thing. And after it was over, they were like, oh, this this guy's a big... Uh, a big Kiss fan, and it was Paul and Gene, and Paul quickly took a picture with me, shook my hand, and split. And Gene said to me after the interview, and this is just, again, this is right like a week or two before they did Unplugged and they reunited, and and he said to me after the interview, he's like, what are you doing now? Which I've never had anybody ask me that after an interview, and I said uh, probably just going back to the office. He's like, "Well, you got you got a little time to hang out. I want to pick your brain on something." I know it was because I was the I was like you know in my early twenties and you know dressed like Kurt Cobain or something, and, and he <laughs> right. he thought for whatever reason, and he started asking me all these, "What do you think of Tool? What do you think of Rage Against the Machine?" He started interviewing me. I swear to God, and and we're sitting there, Gene, the producer, myself on the couch, and I just start talking to him then. And and I'm like, well, what about Eddie Van Halen? There's these rumors that you've that you have tapes of of Alex and Eddie backing you up on certain songs. And he was like, yeah, I got those, I got those. He's like, I got that. I got. He's like, I got Kurt Cobain singing "Going Blind," which I'm not sure is actually correct. He he may have I because I know Kurt produced the album that of the Melvins where they covered going blind. Yeah. Yeah. So it is possible. There's an alternate version where Kurt does leads. Although I don't think so. He probably was mixing it up with the buzz, uh, version, Mm -hmm. but who knows, who knows? Gene claimed he had that. Um, and he, uh, and he claimed he had these tapes of Van Halen, um, backing him up on kiss songs. I said, well, why don't you ever release that? And he said, "Oh, I'd love to, but the Van Halen guys don't want me to." That's right. what he. That's what he told me. Yeah. And and you go into these songs uh, in 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 your book, and let's first. Can you give me a rundown of of when this happened? This is after a coin turned turned Van Halen down. At some point, Gene yeah. approaches at least Alex and and Eddie, I think just those two guys, right? And says, come, come back me up. And, and Roth, which he speaks about that in his book, he, this is where his mistrust, I think of Gene kind of started to uh, creep in. And, and, and do you think Gene suddenly turned against Roth after knowing that one of a coin's reasons for not supporting the group was he didn't like Roth's voice? Yeah, I mean, let's start with that question, and then we'll go back to the the demos. I mean, I think that's possible. I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's possible. I, I believe that Gene probably saw the whole package for what it was and thought that Roth was uh, a good frontman. I'm sure. I know. I mean, that's what he talked about. How he thought Roth was a good frontman, and so. But maybe I can imagine if you're, you know, you're sitting and listening to this tape, and you know, you have someone like a coin who you obviously trust. 
his vision and his, uh, you know, his basically his A&R abilities to basically say this is a good song or not a good song and this is good or not good. And maybe he was like, oh, yeah, maybe Roth isn't that good of a singer. Um, I mean, again, I, I think looking at listening back to the demo, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone was like, you know, this guy is a great singer. Um, I just, you know, I think, I think if you listen to Van Halen 1, I think there's a lot of ways to go away from that going, wow, man, this guy's a kick-ass singer. This guy's good, you know, because of the stuff that, the way it's put together on that record. It's just different. Yeah, on sure. I mean, in rock and roll, sure, he's, he's a great singer. I mean, yeah. I, it's like, it's hard for me, you know, it's like not everyone has this operatic, you know, voice, uh, you right. know, I mean, look at Mick Jagger. Is Mick Jagger a good singer? No. Is, is Bob Dylan a good singer? No. Was Johnny Cash a good singer? No. None of these guys were good singers, but they had the attitude and, and the fact that, a, uh, people couldn't recognize that back in the early days. And I recognize Roth did improve and, you know, his voice got better, but rock and roll is, is, uh, it's about having the attitude, which unquestionably Roth had. Tons yeah. Of that. And I think the other thing too to think about is, I mean, this was, that was the, that was a big pressure situation for those guys too. I mean, they're in the, st- the studio with Gene, they're recording these songs. I can imagine like, you know, it's hard to get loose. Um, yeah. you know, and that's one of the things that I, um, heard out of Templeman when I was with him in Pasadena and we had the, the book signing in Pasadena. He said, I just wanted Dave to relax. I worked really, really hard to get Dave to relax. Be like, let's have some fun. Let's get loose. Because he said, you know, anyone gets nervous. And he said that he thought that Dave especially was a guy who, once you got him loose, did a lot better. And I can imagine he just sounds, he just didn't sound like himself. Right. The right. demo. So, um, so, yes. And so around April, you're, you're challenging my memory a little bit here, but around April of 1977, Kiss is done with their tour. They get back from Japan. They've done this, you know, they've done this world tour. They get back from Japan. Which would have probably been the rock and roll over. Yeah, exactly. So Gene, Gene lands back in LA and he had said to the Van Halen boys, if you get a deal, basically I'll, you know, or basically if you get a deal, great, no worries. And he had, he had torn up the contract. So by the time they get back, um, by the time Gene gets back, Van Halen has signed to Warner brothers. So, that's that's nailed down. I mean, they are really? the, okay. they, you know, So in April 1977, the deal is done. They're on Warner Brothers. But what I think ends up happening is that Gene probably sees Eddie and Alex as useful to him. Number one, to do these demos, but also number two, I can imagine that maybe he thought, "Hey, you know what? Even if they're signed to Warner Brothers, maybe they can write some songs with me." I mean, again, I'm just sort of spitballing here. I never heard anyone say that publicly to say for sure, yes, that's what Gene's interest was in hanging out with those guys. But you know, but certainly Roth got increasingly uneasy with the fact that Gene seems to be very interested in Eddie and Alex, not so interested in Dave. And he's worried that they're, he's going to try to steal those guys away in some way. Now, I, I honestly don't think, number one, that Gene was trying to steal those guys for, for Kiss. I, I've said this before. Well, right do you, you don't think that even at that time, they could have been eyeing him as as uh, Eddie. That is as somebody who could, knowing how great Eddie was and how revolutionary he was, and obviously Gene recognized that. That hey, maybe we get him in Kiss. I mean, that, do you think that ever th- crossed Gene's mind? I know it's been spun around where years later, you know, in the Creatures of the Night phase, Gene claims Eddie asked him to join sure. Kiss, which is kind of unbelievable. And I think Eddie is actually denied that but but uh i wonder you know i i you know it's hard for me to believe that in early 1977 gene would be trying to hatch up a plan where he would boot ace and or peter from the group right um you know if you think about the solo albums are coming out they've they've worked so hard to maintain this 
this, this, these image of these four different guys. Uh, yeah, but the whole reason they did this solo record was because, you know, they they were threatening to, to quit the band and they wanted to do their own thing, you know, they, they being Ace and Peter. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, you know, it just, it's very difficult for me to imagine right, that sure, you could sure. actually say, like, you know what would be a good idea? Let's kick out the two guys who are as identifiable as we are, arguably, as meaning Gene and Paul, and we'll get these two unknown guys in the band and we'll, you know, pass them off, whatever, pass them off in the same makeup or whatever. So I, I find that difficult. I mean, is mm-hmm. it possible? I mean, yeah, I guess anything's possible. Maybe, maybe he did think about that. I find that hard to, hard to swallow. The thing I don't find as hard to swallow is that he thought those guys maybe could be a resource for him. And so hence right, we yeah. have these demos that are done. They're done again in Village Recorder. They absolutely, the sessions took place. Um, I quote Rudy Liren in the book. Uh, Rudy was Eddie's guitar tech for many years from like 1974, basically up through 1985 or 86. He worked for Eddie. He was there. He saw it happen. It absolutely happened. Um, they record Got Love for Sale, Tunnel of Love. And Christine 16. So they just record these demos. This is basically Gene's songs that he wants to put on the next record that he wants to get down in demo form. And famously, as we all know, Eddie records Christine 16 and does the solo basically note for note that Ace will copy later on, uh, on uh, the next record that comes out, yeah, Love Gun. And so, the, yeah, love, thank you. Yeah. So, so the, then there's this story, which I'm sure you're about to say, but that that somebody drops, and you quote them in the book. You'll have to remind me who it is, but that is the solo on Christine 16 still the original one that Eddie played, so, or did Ace cop it note for note? So. Yeah, in 1984-85, uh, Rudy Liren did an interview with uh, Stephen Rosen, uh, who was you know, all over Guitar World in the 1980s and 90s, a legendary journalist. And uh, he said, he goes, you know, when I heard the Love Gun album and I heard Christine 16, the solo sounded exactly like Eddie. And he was insisting to, St- uh, to uh, Stephen Rosen, Rudy was, Eddie's guitar tech, that that was the same solo. Right. Uh, wow. You know. To my ears, it doesn't sound like Eddie playing. Yeah, yeah, mine either. Because after you know, I went back and I listened to it, and and it just it just doesn't sound like it's it's a much drier sound. Um, anything's possible, but yeah. But so I think the the bigger issue here, which we're both we're both nailing down, is that Eddie basically wrote the solo for Ace. You yeah. Know, Ace hears the demo, and goes, "Oh, that's good. Let's just let's just do this." Um, there's there's a uh, the other the other thing that's worth remarking about as well is that uh that Eddie was struggling a bit with the solo for Christine sixteen. Yeah, it's a and, great uh, story in the Yeah, book. and so Rudy Rudy talks about how he's sitting there and Gene is through you know, through the talk back, kept saying to Eddie, like, do it like this, do it like this. I want it simpler, simpler. Whatever he wanted, Eddie wasn't doing it. Eddie was getting frustrated and Roth is actually there. So that you know, Roth shows up. Um uninvited to the studio supposedly supposedly you know he was not invited by gene to come but he heard that the, the guys were going and he just shows up and so you know you know it's supposed to be that very awkward moment where gene is looking at dave and dave's looking at gene like oh okay so because dave wanted to keep an eye on his boys and uh dave then says to gene hey gene can i uh, can i go talk to him and, and right. he walks in and, and basically explains to eddie this is what gene wants and then eddie cuts the solo just the way gene wants it cut yeah it's a so, great story yeah it's awesome. uh, and, so, and it shows it shows how, uh, the the relationship between between Eddie and Dave and how 
there were thir- certain things that here's this guy Gene Simmons, this outsider who he he just couldn't express to to Eddie, but but Dave was able to to get it out of him. You know, so it's a uh, cool, definitely a great story, one of many in the Van Halen Rising book by Greg Renoff, available on Amazon, and is this is in bookstores now too, right? Oh yeah, it's in Barnes and Noble. You're, any independent bookstore you go to, yeah, you know, half price books, all those different places, yeah. Now, again, we don't we don't have all night here to talk about everything, but I do want to talk about Ted Templeton and and his involvement and uh, a question that I had in the book that I found kind of confusing that as I wanted to ask you about. It it's, you know, Ted this is after the whole New York thing, after the mm-hmm. the Gene Simmons mm-hmm. thing. Ted Ted gets wind of these guys. Uh, mm-hmm. I think through a was it a Rodney Bingenheimer connection or something? Marshall Burl. Marshall Burl, right, right, right. So Marshall Burl, who went on to work with Rat, mm-hmm. and was the guy who actually got Milton Burl in the in the Rat video. Mm-hmm. His uncle Milton Burl. So Marshall Burl is working with Van Halen. Uh, turns Ted Templeton on to him. And Ted goes down to the clubs to to see Van Halen play. And on the night that he's there, I guess he goes one night, and it's a poorly attended show, but he's mm-hmm. impressed enough to come back the next night, I guess, with with some more people in tow, or at least one other guy in tow. Uh, so both of these nights that Ted is at the Van Halen show, uh, we're talking like 15, 20 people supposedly in the in the audience. Is it? But yet, you know, there were the parties and and the shows and out in Pasadena, or wherever we're we're talking, thousands of people would would show up. I guess I just don't get how you can bring two thousand people to a show in Pasadena, but you're playing to fifteen, twenty people at a club, you know, on the Strip. Uh, is it? I mean, can we say that maybe at this point, Van Halen's popularity? Post Gene Simmons, post the the New York failure, and and pre the first record was was there was their popularity fading? I think you know I think you're bringing up a good a good point. I probably could have done more within the book, but here's what I think actually goes on. And so Van Halen's been playing the Starwood, so the the club that Templeman sees them at is called the Starwood Club. Uh, it's now torn down. It was a Hollywood notorious Hollywood club. They they. They premiered there in May of 76. So they've been playing the Starwood for some months um, pretty regularly. Now, they've also shifted over to the whiskey at this point. But, you know, it's it's a, it's Hollywood. It's a hike from Pasadena. You can imagine that people hang out in Hollywood have seen Van Halen a number of times. It's the middle of the week. Um, and so, you know, I think – but I think your point is well taken is that they had sort of this – there was probably outside of Pasadena in Hollywood a sense that Van Halen had kind of peaked. Eddie, from what I understand, um, from interviews I did, I didn't really talk about this in the book, but was was apparently, you know, uncomfortable with letting people know, obviously, that they'd come back from New York and they hadn't have a record deal. So it was this sort of, yeah, we went to New York, we have this tape, but no one wants to talk about the other thing, which is you didn't get the deal. Right. And so, um, you know, whether or not this was this was regular dealings for Van Halen on that, at that time in Hollywood, I wouldn't say it was, but I think it was, I think your point is that that Van Halen had sort of hit its peak in Hollywood. In other words, I think people had seen them and kind of like been like, yeah, we know this band and we know their songs. And, um, you know, not every night of the week was everyone going to kind of caravan from Pasadena down there. And so the other thing to think about is that in early 1977, you know, punk rock is, is hitting the strip. And so the Sex Pistols have hit big. 
the Ramones, Blondie, television, all these groups are, are big. And so around Hollywood, there's much more of a, a sense that this is the next big thing, meaning punk rock, new wave, what new wave or punk rock. And so, you know, Van Halen doesn't fit in that well at all, obviously. No, you know, only the totally confused people at the time would have said they were punk, which some people did actually, which is kind of funny because they were a new group. But so I think that all was factoring into that. So Templeman comes on a lightly attended night, the first night. And he, he actually doesn't present himself to the band. He says he hung out in the back, he told me, and just watched and was just blown away by Eddie. He said, this guy is incredible. He liked the band, but he loved Eddie. And so what he does the next night is he brings Mo Austin with him. And so he thought strategically uh, about who to bring from Warner Brothers. And Mo was definitely a guy who was you know, very top of the company there. I think he was the, at the president at that time of the company. Um, but Mo had signed the Kinks. Mo Austin had signed the Kinks. And Mo Austin had also signed Jimi Hendrix. And so he knew that he could sort of get Mo to see this guy's a great guitar player, just like Jimmy is, just like the King, great riffs like the Kinks. And that all worked, worked exactly according to the way Templeman wanted him to, you know, um, from what Ted explained to me is that, you know, he thinks, you know, he, Ted at the time was a vice president of Warner Brothers too. So it wasn't like Ted was just some, some guy, you know, there, he was obviously uh, an executive at the company was a, was a house producer. And so I, from what I gathered from Ted, even if Mo hated them, he probably would have given them another chance. He probably would have not walked out and said no. He probably would have given Ted a chance to make the case to him further. But Mo loved them too and said, "Let's let's sign these guys." And they signed signed the uh, the letter of intent. You know, they don't actually sign the whole deal, but they go in the in the in the uh, Starwood. They sort of say, "We're going to sign." And then the next day, they sign the letter of intent, committing to Warner Brothers. And then the the, the final contracts are done a few weeks later. Yeah. Well, it's it, and there's tons of great stuff about about Ted getting them in for the demos and into the studio for the demos and and then of course finally the record and and how they didn't there was a long dry spell and Warner Brothers didn't want them playing shows. All this is in the book again Van Halen Rising is the name of the the book uh feature it's uh exclusively about the the early days of 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 Van Halen up until about uh, what right before the the second record, I would say. Right? Yeah, and so my idea was to sort of climax with the uh, with them becoming you know international superstars. And this book is is just a, a real page turner. You you do a great job at uh, keeping the story interesting, which is sometimes difficult with with history. But there's a, a you you feel the excitement as you're flipping the pages on on of the book about you know them making it, the disappointments, you, 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 and and the the ups and downs. You feel it all. It's definitely a great read. I highly recommend it to everyone. Thanks. Um, I would like to before we wrap things up talk about the reviews of the first record which to mm -hmm. me is just one of the greatest rock records ever made um you know actually before we go there though let's quickly one other little ted templeton thing that that i i think i've recognized in you know he avoided overdubs for the most parts on that first record sure there's a few here here and there uh, i think jamie's crying and there's a, a handful of overdubs as far as the guitar goes um but he he, he avoided those and, and tried to keep it a real live sound uh, and, and he, the guys had expressed to them the, at least Eddie did the problems they had with overdubbing mm -hmm. with Gene. However, all that aside, part of the Van Halen sound on, on that first record and potentially the first six records is the Templeton sound. Now, if you listen to Templeman's Doobie Brothers stuff, listen to China Grove, to me, 
it's not all that different. Listen to that song. Put the headphones on, and and the guitar starts off. It's panned to the almost the the hard right. You know, there are two guitars on that song, China Grove, a song that Ted Templeman produced. Um, but it's got a similar vibe. It doesn't work if you listen only listening to one speaker, just like Van Halen. You need that stereo thing in order to get the full effect and uh even montrose a similar thing those those first two montrose records uh is very similar mixing and panning scenarios going on with with uh those those bands i mean the doobies obviously a very different band than van halen but Again, listen to China Grove. There's some, that song specifically, there's some, I mean, it almost sounds like a Van Halen mix on that song. So a lot of this that we hear, you got to give a lot of credit to Ted is what I'm saying when it comes to that first record. Don't you agree? Listen, yeah. I mean, I think, I think if you, again, if you compare what Gene did to what Ted did, it's night and day. And I don't say that's knock Gene. I, I I want to be clear that I think any producer, anyone who's tried to do what Gene did is going to struggle probably. You know, he, he, he meets these guys and he takes them to the studio the next day. I mean, he didn't have, he didn't have the, the luxury that Ted had, which was to take weeks and weeks and weeks to do pre-production. Ted told me he used to go down in the basement of Roth's mansion with those guys and spend hours down there going over the songs, going, oh, you should cut this part out, or what about this? This is really cool. Working with those guys to help craft the songs, to streamline them, and to, to, to you know, to say silly, go, you know, you have 25 songs, but we're not going to record this one, we're going to record this one. And that's not to take anything away from Ted. I just mean that you have a, a scenario where a guy had time to work, and work and work. And yeah, it, look, the, the, the whole, to me, the Templeman, Landy, recordings are of those those first albums are you know touchstones i mean i think they're absolutely yeah. magnificent um and you can say the same the same thing about that first montrose record i absolutely love that thing i always say to people even if you hate sammy hagar you know, yeah. if you're a guy that i hate sammy hagar van halen i'm not saying i am like that but some people you know they hate it go listen to the first montrose record you may not love sammy with van halen but that's a great kick-ass rock record rock record oh I mean, yeah absolutely rock candy i mean all the, all the way down the line it's incredible yeah, the first two montrose <laughs> records i mean i would i would say just incredible records and, um and ted did the second one too didn't he yeah, i think pretty sure he did yeah he did the second one right he didn't do the one after that um, right but you know yeah, I the think, second one is the one with i got the fire which maiden covered and i mean that that, that second record paper money i think it's called it i i used to have that on vinyl i think i still do actually great great record montrose great band um, so that Ted really, yeah. I mean, if just think that Ted understood Van Halen, he understood, especially the Eddie's guitar playing was the centerpiece of the band. He understood right. that Roth had his strengths and weaknesses. And I think Ted nailed down what Roth was good at and said, here, we're going to work on this and just you know, do these things. Don't do the, don't do the house of pain, low growls. That doesn't sound good. Do this scream or whatever. And kind of got him, you know, to, to help put that persona together on vinyl. Now, when the album finally did come out, a few good reviews here and there. The 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 newspaper out of London or the UK sounds mm-hmm. liked it. Uh, there were again a handful of good reviews as far as the first record goes, but mostly, at least from reading your book, it seems like mostly negative reviews when it came to the live performances and and uh, the first record around that time. I mean, why why is this? Why couldn't the snobby music critics of the time understand how great this was? And when when I hear them 
you know, lump lump Van Halen, which to me was doing something uniquely different. You know, that fun California vibe with the the, the heavy hard rock. Uh, you know, the which you know could be could argue was a lot of that was Roth's doing, but they were doing something combining two different things or more than two to many different things, and, and and to just lump them in with like oh they're they're just you know doing the same thing as Humble Pie and and Black Sabbath. I mean, to me, it's like night and day. They weren't doing the same thing, and and how how did so many music critics of the day miss that was it because they just felt like they were being told that the trends were going other ways with punk rock and and they didn't give it a chance or were were they just all idiots you know i think i mean yeah probably that's part of that but the the i think that there was a sense that hard rock and heavy metal had played itself out and that's what i was trying to get at with the title of the book was that Right. In terms of the way the, the popular, the common wisdom, if you ask people who were, you know, hip to music at the time, it was like, you know, Black Sabbath is over. Zeppelin, oh, they haven't put out a record since 70, you know, 76 since Presence. What are they doing? They're done. Um, Black Oak, Arkansas is a joke. Humble Pie's over. Grand Funk Railroad's over. You go down the line, all these groups, it was a sense that this was over. And so when people saw Van Halen, they saw, uh, I mean, a lot of critics, and they saw, oh, the guitar player, like, he's like Richie Blackmore. We, you know, he does the classical thing. He's like, Richie Blackmore. I know the singer, he looks like Black Oak, Arkansas. He's just another Robert Plant wannabe. He's not any good. So they just blew it off. And I don't think they really, I don't think they really listened actually. I think a lot of times I think they just sort of like, were like, Oh, this is just a rehash instead of, um, you know, taking it seriously. I mean, even cream magazine, which is kind of hilarious in retrospect by the early eighties, of course, cream is all over Van Halen, but there's this quote in the book that says, from uh, March or May 1978, I mean, right after the Van Halen record comes out, it's, you know, the writer goes, face the fact, kiddos, when it comes to heavy rock and roll, you know, the kind of stuff that sounds like a herd of dinosaurs engaging in some prehistoric s and um, you know, this is what you're going to get, basically implying that these guys are dinosaurs, that this is, this is the last of a dying breed of music. And so I think for all the good reviews, there were some, but I think the, the, the kind of majority opinion was... These guys aren't going anywhere. The Sex Pistols, which, by the way, Warner Brothers had released, uh, never mind the Bullocks, in November of 77, if I remember correctly. It had just come out um, in America. And so I think the implication was like, you know what, this is this stuff is over. What's yeah. going to be new and hot is going to be it, the Sex Pistols. It's just amazing that through time how how the the snobby New York and, and especially New York, but uh, L.A., music critics too and, and London music critics have seemed to be so out of touch with middle America and the common man and, and you, you know I like the Sex Pistols listen I, I like the Velvet Underground I like the Strokes even in more recent times but these were all the the bands that the the, the critics loved and they never really caught on you know and yet you look at Led Zeppelin and and Sabbath and Van Halen and hell you I mean I hate to include bands like Nickelback or whatever but they sell a, a shitload of records I you know and and the critics hate, hate these bands you know and so it's uh, it's it's interesting that that went on with Van the, Halen the one thing I tried to do in the chapter on the 78 tour was to uh, I, I used a lot of newspaper reviews it, what was surprising to me was that even at the time when you have a lot of critics bashing the Van Halen record you had a lot of times not always, but a lot of times, these critics would go see Van Halen open for Journey or open for Van Halen open for Black Sabbath, and they would say, 
they put on a good show. These guys are good because they saw the crowd getting into them. And I think, you know, later years where, of course, the crowds went crazy for Van Halen 81, 82. At that point, you know, to, in their eyes of the critics, Roth was obnoxious. He was full of himself. You know, it was just sort of this like, I don't, you know, Van Halen sucks. A lot of critics thought, um, you know, the ones who liked uh, Elvis Costello as Roth famously would say later. But it's interesting. In 78, they were sort of like, they, they won over a lot of these these right. uh, music critics who went to see them live because they were so great. And look, that's the other thing, too, that people missed. If you listen to the record, it's one thing you say, ah, you know, you really got me. They're just rehashing the 60s. You saw Van Halen live in 1978. It was a force of nature. Um, they play the Texas Jam on rented instruments and they steal the show. And from, you know, and the whole, the whole crowd just went crazy for the first band on the stage. They just went absolutely berserk for Van Halen. Um, and this is, this is happens over and over and over again where Van Halen comes on, blows everybody away and leaves everyone thinking, Oh my God, the guitar player, what did he just do? And the singer and, and everyone goes home and they say, I just saw this incredible band Van Halen. And that's why the record sold, you know, uh, 2 million copies is because not only were they, they had a good record, but they also delivered live and they played a ton of shows. They toured from uh, March through December of 78. They were on the road a long time. One other thing I want to touch upon, and we'll wrap it up after this, but, uh, you know, we kind of spoke about this the last time, uh, talking more about videos and, and film footage that may be, uh, and live recordings that may be in the vaults, but what about all these studio recordings? I mean, through through your book, there was stuff that was demoed. I mean, uh, what's that one guy's name? Kim Frowley or Fowley? I, I mean, that song he wrote. I listened to that on YouTube after reading about it in in your book. That's a great song, and it sounds like it's really well produced. Uh, even even on the you know crummy YouTube, uh, there's got to be some great sounding unreleased stuff in the vaults by Van Halen. Uh, I mean, it appears to be quite a bit of it. I mean, in any other band, Kiss, Led Zeppelin, you know, they, they, they go back and release every little freaking even Ozzy, you know, with the Randy Rhodes stuff, they go back and release every, Iron Maiden, uh, everything that they can, they can put out there. They, they release to make a buck. Why, why is Van Halen sitting on all this stuff? Does it, uh, is it all come back to the, the issue that they don't want to have to pay Michael Anthony or, I, or? I, I think, I have some ideas. Let me start with the first thing is that I heard recently, all due respect to Eddie Van Halen, I heard him say something due to the effect of, oh, well, the demo recording we did for Ted Templeman, again, this is not the album sessions, right? This is the demo that was done earlier in 1977. Right. This is you know done in Sunset Sound, whatever it was, 24 track, the whole nine yards. Oh, those tapes are lost. Um, I, I dare suggest that it's highly, highly unlikely that a, you know, a corporation like Warner Brothers, which was, a, which is the, obviously one of the great record labels in the history of, of, of recorded music has lost you know, reels that say Van Halen on the side that are lost. I, I suspect that those guys have their reasons why they don't want that stuff to come out. Um, you know, I think you go down the list, you think about me, is it Michael Anthony could be, is it that those guys really truly believe that they only want um, the, the record, the, basically what they put on the albums to come out because they haven't even done any bonus tracks. I mean, you, you and I both know, and anyone listening to this should know, is that you go in the studio, there's always going to be, you know, even if it's like one minute and 30 seconds of Eddie playing guitar on a solo that Ted didn't like or something, he's yeah. going to say, oh, do it again. Or, you and know, then when they do live. the reissues, I mean, like, God, Bowie is a, the master of this. It's like, you know, here's all these bonus tracks. Motley Crue, same thing. You get the bonus tracks on the reissues and that allows them to, you know, keep, making money off of the hardcore fans by releasing these same albums with a few 
extras here and there. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't fully understand why. Could it be that Van Halen's, um, you know, just these guys, guys just don't want to go down that road. They don't want to bother with it. In other words, maybe they just don't care enough to release it. Uh, I don't, I don't know, but I do. I will tell you, I am, you know, I am certain there is material. Whatever, I don't care what anybody says. I am certain there's material sitting in the vault. I'm not saying there's like Zeppelin's. You know, piles of material, but there are in the in the vault. There's going to be material on those reels that was not used that could be released. I don't know if it's full songs, it's alternate tracks, alternate vocals. I mean, you could be sure Roth didn't cut every single vocal the first time and nail it. You know, we know that it's going to be like, do it again, Dave, sing it again, and just okay, so Dave sings it again. So there's an alternate vocal. Um, you know, even look at 1984. Eddie famously sat up there with Don Landy for months and months and months working on on 1984. Where are those tracks? You know, so this is the stuff. It's, it's, I don't understand. I think there is a missed opportunity beyond belief. And I think people would just go crazy for the stuff and it would just, just do so much for those guys in terms of catalog sales. Much like, I mean, just would generate more and more excitement around Van Halen. Think about how much, how Jimmy Page rolled it all out. He was brilliant how he did it. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, Greg. Thank you, as always, for joining us on uh, this third installment which uh, of of uh, coverage of your book and discussion about your book and of course the great band Van Halen have there been any recent developments as far as future plans for we know Wolfgang is is continuing work on his solo record but in the last few weeks or ever since I spoke with you last you know the last month has there been any additional plans for or hints at what David Eddie and Alex might be up to next so first thing i would say is do you find it curious that dave has not said anything publicly for almost what 8 months now right i find that very strange and and i think that's telling about something i don't know what it is i'll let people think about what that is but there it's very strange that a man who could not get himself away from a microphone ever doesn't talk so we're not hearing anything from dave um wolfie's from what i've been seeing on instagram and following him on twitter he's been sending out pictures of him working in 5150 so i believe that is his quote-unquote solo project solo band whatever it's going to be i don't think we know for sure what it is but it's not van halen music wolfie had uh tweeted out about six weeks eight weeks ago maybe a little bit longer back when the tour was still going that he couldn't wait to get back to work on his record right. so i think that's priority number one uh, i would be shocked if we got news that Van Halen was going to do anything next year, early in the year, or even later in the year. I just I just don't see it. Um anything happening. I think those guys have done the tour and, you know, I think the the way it's gone in the past, there's been a couple of years off before something happens again. And so to me, every year is is precious at this point. These guys are not getting any younger. Um but you know, the idea about them doing a new record, I, I don't see that happening just because they've had opportunities in the past to do a record with Roth, uh, meaning after A Different Time of Truth came out in 2012 and nothing happened. And so I hope I'm wrong. Believe me, I, I really do. Obviously, I would love it to be, you know, be proved wrong yeah. tomorrow. I mean, they, they just, it's like we spoke about this the last time. They need to, to go out, do a co-headlining thing with a band that has a similar audience base. I mean, there's now this rumor Kiss and Judas Priest are going to do uh, an arena tour tour together in 2016 i hope it's true you know they those two bands recognize they need each other to they might 
not be able to fill arenas all over the country anymore on their own, but together they will be. And I mean, I, I really think Van Halen could, could do something like that and be really successful instead of getting these kind of strange choices as, as openers and, and stuff like that. They need, they need to, to suck it up and, and, recognize that their fans also want i mean what about van halen the scorpions they would probably never do it but th- that would be a good build together you know or listen i always and i always i've said it before to you i think is that uh can you imagine van halen and kiss i mean it'd be the perfect you yeah. know they could you know can you, in, a, in, a, in a magical be, universe be, like Eddie and Gene doing together can you imagine yeah yeah it would be great. I mean, it would be fantastic, you know, and then they could play up the whole rivalry with Roth. I mean, they, they could get, he could get so much mileage out of that, you know, yeah. just, but they, I, yeah, they'll never do that. I don't see it. Yeah. I'm sure Gene would do it, but I don't, I don't see, uh, the Van Halen's doing it. So what other bands do you like, Greg? Um, I just bought all the second reissues actually. I just, they are of a, a long, long loved, uh, favorite of mine. Um, I like Lamb of God, uh, Mastodon, some of the newer stuff. Um, cool. But uh, yeah, Doors. Doors were always a long, long um, history with me. I go back. I was actually I was into the Doors before I was into uh, Van Halen. When I was a little kid. I got into them. Allman Brothers, and you know that cool. was uh, yeah, excellent, cool. Well, will there be another Van Halen book at some point, or is that is hey, stay tuned? Stay tuned. It's all it's all still to be determined. Um, right. Yeah. Just really, yeah, a couple of quick things. Like the book got reviewed in Rolling Stone magazine this yeah, week. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that was a very, very big achievement and uh, an amazing and surreal experience for me as a kid who grew up Rolling Stone. Obviously, to have that happen is something you don't expect. And uh, the other thing that just happened, I'll, I'll tell you guys, is that um, uh, Amazon puts together best of list for 2015. And uh, Van Halen Rising was included in their top books in the humor and entertainment category. So there's about 20 books that they chose out of the thousands of books that are like that on Amazon. Uh, wow. to include. And so that was a big, uh, a big yeah, piece of news. Yeah. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank, yeah. So very, very cool for, um, to see that happen. I just really appreciative to everyone who's uh, bought the book and talked about the book. And of course, to you, Mark, for having me on so many times, you've uh, done a yeoman's job <laughs> on three times. Yeah. Yeah, man. No, well, I, I, again, I went earlier today. I said, let's keep this to 40 minutes, but here we are at an hour already. So it's, it's just, it's all good. I love uh, it. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to stop. Uh, love talking about Van Halen and, and all the bands that, that, uh, that, that we all love. It's so much fun talking metal, talking rock with all the listeners and with guys like you, Greg. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure always. We'll have links up in today's show notes to Van Halen Rising. It's a great way to support Greg. It's also a great way to support Talking Metal because we do get a little kickback when you use our Amazon links. So go to the Talking Metal section in the show notes on TalkingMetal.com and uh, buy Greg's book using our links. Thanks, guys, for listening. And what should we play here to take us out, Greg? Oh, let's play uh, Take Your Whiskey Home. Great. Cool. Talk to you next time. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot, Greg. Hey, that was great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Well, my baby, she don't want me around. She said she's tired of watching me fall down. <laughs> she wants a good life and all the best. But I like that bottle better than the rest. And she said, I think that you're headed for a whole lot of trouble. Well, I think that you're headed for a whole lot of trouble. Well, I think that you're headed for a whole lot of trouble.
It's all right. Nobody takes me. 